Welcome to the Naples Community Church Podcast with Pastor Kurt Anderson. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you find this sermon inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective to see God moving in your life. We trust God has great things in store for you. Enjoy today's message. Our scripture lesson for today comes from Mark's Gospel. I'll be reading from chapter 12, verses 41 through 44. Friends, hear now the word of God. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were being put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put in more into the treasury than all of the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Prince the word of the Lord. In England, the University of Bristol, the past decade has been focusing a section of their study on ants in South America. Ants, A-N-T-S. The researchers have concluded that when these ants go out on raiding parties, that is searching for food, that they have a certain inherent code of conduct. The first ants on the trail when they come to a pothole, will go down into the pothole, embrace themselves, and they will stack up until the pothole has been filled and the remaining ants cross over on their backs, lest they lose time or speed. They have concluded that sometimes as many as 1,000 ants will serve as pothole fillers, while 200,000 ants cross over on their backs. I find that to be just amazing. Once they find the food and they're headed back home, the process repeats itself. The first ants to the pothole go down into the hole and brace themselves, while the 200,000 cross in reverse order back over their backs. Once back home, the food is shared evenly among all the ants. But the most interesting fact is none of the ants are actually assigned the role of being pothole fillers. Instead, each ant becomes a pothole filler when the need arises. I love that story. God does things like that, even through Mother Nature. Because it demonstrates, even in the animal-insect world, the willingness to sacrifice. To admit that some things are bigger than oneself. Today, I want to focus on the word sacrifice. And before I talk about the widow and her gift, allow me to set the stage. Jesus and the 12 disciples are in Jerusalem. It's the last week of Jesus' life on earth. Most theologians believe it's Wednesday, the day before the Last Supper and Jesus' arrest. Each night this week, the 13 are sleeping up on the Mount of Olives at 2,100 feet. And during the morning, they go down and Jesus teaches in the temple courts. 
Now envision with me for just a moment, a church building. It's surrounded by open aired space on all four sides. And then outside of that, there's four walls going all the way around. So you have a walled in open aired space with the church in the middle. Now, if we would go in the front door of this church called the synagogue, and we marched up front, right in the very front would be a, a small door leading into a small room called the Holy of Holies. And this was where the Ark of the Covenant stayed. It was where the presence of God lived. One priest chosen by lottery one time per year got to enter the Holy of Holies and offer the sacrifice for all the Jewish people. And then if we would come out of that room under the area that was a small stage, it was called the Court of Israel. I'm sorry, it was called the Most Holy Place. And only the priests were allowed in this area, and today we would call it the chancel. And then the two-thirds of the sanctuary, back toward the front door, was called the Court of Israel, and only Jewish men were allowed there. And then if we went out the front door into the open-aired space that went all the way around this church, but was still within the walls, that was called the Courtyard of Women. Now, the Courtyard of Women helped the storage bins in the slaughtering area. And it was as close as a Jewish woman could come to the Holy of Holies in the presence of God. Because you see, in Jesus' day, Jewish women were afforded very few rights. But interestingly, they were afforded the right to give. The Jewish Mishnah tells us that on the outside wall of this synagogue, in the courtyard of women, in the open air area, there were 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles lined up along the wall, about head high. And coins were dropped in the top, and they went all the way down through the narrow opening and they clanged in the bottom. 13 receptacles. On each, there was an inscription for which offering was to be placed in that particular receptacle. Now, the first three were for the tithes. The word tithe meaning a tenth. The first tithe went to the Levites those from the tribe of Levi who by birth were born into the family of priests. They didn't have outside jobs. They worked full-time at the church. They were paid for through the gifts to that receptacle. The second receptacle or the second tithe or tenth was to receive the gifts from agriculture. Your wheat, your grain, your animals, Whatever you raised, one-tenth of what you made that year was to be given into that second receptacle. The third receptacle was for the poor, the orphans, and the widows. It was a tithe every third year, so each year you gave three and a third percent, and you gave it to that particular receptacle. Now, the other ten receptacles were for what they called free will offerings, things that you could, as you felt led, give to at your own discretion. Now understand there's no paper money in Jesus' day. Everything was coinage. And so in our story, Jesus has been teaching and he sits down to take a rest and he's sitting right next to the area where people have lined up to give their gifts. Now to give your gift, you got to stand in line. And when you get to the front, you tell the priest sitting at the table how much you're giving and to which particular offering it should go. 
He records it, and then you step up and drop your coins into the top, and they circle down and clang at the bottom. This is the situation Jesus is watching, and he sees the widow. He knows exactly that she's given the two small copper coins because she has to tell the priest. He hears it. He sees the opportunity for a teaching moment for the 12, and he goes for it. And he teaches the 12 and us how our Heavenly Father measures our giving. So he explains to them, using her example, first of all, our Heavenly Father does not measure our gift based on what we give, but based upon what we keep. He then explains by saying, those in line in front of her gave large amounts. They dropped their coins in and there was a loud sound when they hit bottom. But because they also saved and kept large amounts for themselves, by comparison, the gift is small compared to this widow. She drops in two small copper coins. They were called mites, M-I-T-E-S. They were the smallest coin in circulation in Israel at the time, worth one-eighth of a penny each. But Jesus knows these are her only two. And so he says to the disciples and us, her gift is valuable in the eyes of God, not because of what she gives, but because of what she chooses not to keep. The second thing Jesus wants us to learn about the Father is that God doesn't measure our gifts by the count, but by the cost. He knows that those in front of her who gave large amounts kept large amounts, and their gifts will not cause them to change their lifestyle one bit. But because she gives all she has, it will cause a lifestyle change, meaning she has sacrificed through her giving. And Jesus says that makes her gift valuable in the eyes of the Father. And then thirdly, Jesus teaches us that sometimes a little becomes a lot when it's placed in the master's hands. I love the story that's found in all four Gospels, where the boy has two fish and five loaves of bread. We don't know where he's going. We assume he's either left home and he's taking it to someone else, or he's received it from someone else and he's taking it home. Either way, Jesus needs it, and so he gives it. And when he gives the two fish and five loaves into Jesus' hands, suddenly the miracle takes place. Because in Jesus' hands, it's multiplied, and the Gospels tell us over 5,000 men are fed. Probably that many women and more kids. 10, 15,000, we don't know for sure. We just know there was a miracle because the two fish and five loaves were placed into the master's hands. Friends, throughout the Bible, we discover that when God touches things, great things happen. There's a small story in the Gospels that tell us that Jesus comes upon a man who is blind. He reaches down and he picks up some dirt, ordinary dirt. The soul wasn't particularly good in Israel then or now. He's got this ordinary dirt in his hand. He mixes it with some saliva. 
something that sounds a little disgusting to us, mixes it with his hands, puts it on the man's eyes and tells him to go wash. And as he does, his eyesight returns because the dirt in Jesus' hands can do miraculous things. And what about the story where he's with the 12 disciples are out on the lake and the storm comes up and Jesus is sleeping. Who sleeps in the middle of a storm? God's son. But the disciples panic. They say, Jesus, wake up. Don't you care? We're about to perish. Help us. I envision Jesus sitting up and yawning. And then raising his hand and saying, be still. And suddenly everything is calm. Because God's touch changes things. When we place our gifts into the master's hands, great things begin to happen. People like to say that nice guys finish last. I like to say that for those people who think nice guys finish last, they just don't know where the finish line is. Doesn't matter who chooses the teams, God's team always wins. Always has, always will. Bet on it. In 2008, 1,500 people joined me in leaving Covenant Presbyterian Church and starting a new church. God provided us a place to worship the following Sunday. It was at a Brazilian Assembly of God facility where the Brazilians opened their arms and shared with us. And God blessed us through them. They gave us usage of the building Sunday morning and Wednesday night. They took Thursday night and Sunday night. They gave us the best spots. There were 120 of them and 1,500 of us. I was always apologizing for feeling like we had taken over. They let us change the carpet, paint the walls, redecorate the front. And God blessed us through them. Hopefully we blessed them some way in return. But we weren't there even a year and our committee chose 20 acres of land because we had to build a new campus somewhere and it was going to cost millions. And so we did a two-year capital campaign. We established a date for people to bring their pledges, what they were going to give over that two-year period. And as we got really close, I wasn't sure what we were supposed to give. I just knew we had to give something. And then the last week before Commitment Sunday, I heard God in my head saying, will you sacrifice your new boat and give the money for the capital campaign? I have to tell you, I've been a fisherman my entire life. And about three or four weeks ago, I did a devotional that many of you saw on our website where I'm fishing in a pond. And I stopped and told you about growing up fishing in Iowa with my dad. And what joy it gave me every year to go back and fish where he and I used to fish. Fishing's always been in my heart. And I had two canoes and then a really old boat that someone gave me, which had about a year's worth of work, worth in it. And when it died, I have been boatless for years, two decades actually. And then when in Fort Myers in 2006, I actually was in a position where I could buy a boat without feeling guilty. And I bought a beauty, a 21 foot sailfish, 150 Yamaha, four stroke engine on the back, a T-top, a diving platform, the professional fishing package is beautiful. 
and I loved it. And I took great care of it because it was precious to me. And now after less than two years, God was asking me, would I sell it and give the money to the campaign? Really? I have to tell you, I spent a sleepless night attempting to answer that question. But in the morning, I knew what I had to do. And so two days later in church on Commitment Sunday, I told the congregation at the end of the message that God had asked me if I would sacrifice my boat for the campaign, and I was saying yes. When that service was over, people came through the line and the sanctuary emptied out, just a couple of people milling about. And someone, one of the members came in the door and motioned for me to come over and he said, how much are you selling the boat for? And I told him the exact amount that it was worth. He said, wait right here. Three minutes, he was back. Smile on his face, he said, I wanna buy your boat. I said, really, that was fast. He handed me the check for the exact amount I said the boat was worth. He said, now, do I own your boat? I said, well, you don't have the keys. It's still at my house, but I have your check. So yes, I guess you own my boat. He said, great. He turned to leave and he walked four or five steps toward the door. And right before we went out, he stopped. And he turned around almost in slow motion with a wry look on his face. He said, you know, on second thought, I hate boats. He said, and I hate boating. And I don't want your boat. But the same God that told you to sacrifice your boat told me this morning in church to buy your boat. He said, excuse me, and I'm giving you your boat back. And I want you to take that check and give it to the capital campaign. And I had tears running down my face. And I went down into my office. I sat down in my chair and I just bawled. Because you see, for years, I've been telling people that if we sacrifice for God, if we trust God, he will be a provision and he will provide. He blesses those who honor him. And I just didn't expect him to bless me that way. But I tell you that in the next four years that I used that boat every single time I got in it, I remembered it was God's boat. And God had given it, excuse me, back to me because I'd been willing to sacrifice it for him. God doesn't always ask us to sacrifice. Sometimes he just wants to see our heart, wants to know where our priorities are. In 1998, Steven Spielberg made a movie that won Academy Awards. But before I tell you about the movie, let me give you the background. It's a true story from our nation's past. In 1942, five brothers whose last name was Sullivan from Iowa enlisted in the Navy, but with one stipulation, they'd be allowed to serve in the very same unit. The request was granted. They boarded a ship and headed for Guadalcanal, all five Sullivan brothers. But they weren't there a month when a torpedo hit the ship, it sank and all five brothers perished. It caused the powers to be at the top of the food chain to pass a US policy stating that never again could brothers from the same family serve in the same unit. Now fast forward two years, four brothers whose last 
last name was Nyland, signed up and requested being allowed to serve in the same unit. But this time the answer was no, it's not allowed. So they were sent to four different units. Eugene parachuted into Burma, was captured by the Japanese, presumed to be dead in a POW camp. Bob landed at D-Day on Omaha Beach and was killed in the first hour of fighting. Preston, brother number three, landed at D-Day at Utah Beach and the day after landing was killed in the fighting. Fritz parachuted behind enemy lines in occupied France and no one knew exactly where he was. This situation called, caused the government to say, we've got to find Fritz and send him home. And this situation also called Spielberg to make the movie Saving Private Ryan. His name really wasn't James Francis Ryan. It was really Fritz Nyland. And Spielberg took some liberties. The boys were really from Tonawanda, New York, not Iowa, as the movie states. And the brother in the concentration camp in Burma really didn't perish after the war, he sent back home. So two of the four brothers survive in real life. But the movie's fascinating. In the movie, Matt Damon plays James Francis Ryan. Tom Hanks plays Captain Miller, who after the landing at Normandy is given the difficult assignment to choose eight men and go find this needle in a haystack. This boy who we have to send back home to his mother. None of the nine are excited about this difficult assignment. Why should they risk their lives to find one? But I'll go on this dangerous journey, this assignment, half of the nine give their own lives sacrificially attempting to bring back the one. There's a penultimate scene on a bridge that the allied forces are trying to hold and the enemy fire is upon them. And Tom Hanks is mortally wounded and he pulls Private Ryan to his side and he says in his last words, I want you to earn this, earn this. And he dies. And the movie ends with the scene of a now 80 year old Private Ryan kneeling before a cross at a cemetery in Normandy. And he's filled with emotions because the name on the cross is Captain John Miller the one who had instructed him with his last words to earn this. His family, his wife, his children, grandkids are standing at a distance, giving him space. He stands up and when he does, he looks out on 8,385 crosses representing lives that were sacrificed that he might have free life. Filled with emotions, he waves for his wife to come over and she comes. And then he looks her in the eye and with all seriousness and passion, he says, tell me I've been a good husband. Tell me I'm a good man. Tell me I've lived a good life. 
for he wants to know, have I earned the gift all of these have given to me through their sacrifice? Friends, on Memorial Day, we pause to ask the same question. We look out on the rows of crosses and those who have sacrificed to give us the freedoms we enjoy to live in the best country on planet Earth. But more than that, every Sunday we gather here as the family of God. And we remember in church that the freedom we have spiritually comes from the sacrifice God made when he gave his own son and the sacrifice Jesus gave when he laid down upon the cross to become the sacrifice for our sin. As we stop and reflect, we remember there were sacrifices that give us physical freedom and there was a sacrifice that gave us spiritual freedom. And of all people today on planet earth, we should be those who are the most grateful. May God give us understanding. May he give us grateful hearts. May we remember that God is still searching today for pothole fillers, people like you and me, willing to place the greater cause above our own preference or comfort. Friends, may God lead us in this journey. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you today for those who have sacrificed physically that we might live in this great nation. Bless those families who have laid such a costly sacrifice on the altar of freedom. But today we also remember that Jesus sacrificed that we might be set free from our sin, set free from the past that we might be set free for a bountiful future. Set free to live, to be your hands and feet. Surrendered lives that bring you glory. Father, fill us up with grateful hearts this day. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you enjoyed today's podcast, there are a few things you can do. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. For more information, you can visit us online at www.naplescommunitychurch.org. If you happen to be visiting Naples, please drop in for our Sunday service at 10 a.m. We'd love to meet you. Thanks again for joining us. Have a fabulous day.